Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. When you think of chips relative to cannabis, microchips may not come to mind. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group here to tell you that our chips help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, Sunstate proudly serves the technology needs of the cannabis industry. You know that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. sunstatetech.com cannabis. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm delighted that you're here. One of the things I love most about the cannabis industry is how entrepreneurs have been able to overcome regulatory hurdles that no other industry has had to face. And in doing so, they've solved problems with innovative best practices and sustainable solutions that could benefit just about every other sector of industry. At no time in history have these solutions actually been more necessary than they are now. Despite the prevalence of climate denial in our political discourse, the most credible science indicates that we're on the precipice of annihilating the human race if we don't take dramatic action to reduce our carbon footprint. Surviving extreme climate events is going to be the least of our worries if we don't. Food and water scarcity, on the other hand, will amount to our greatest threats. The irony is that unsustainable agricultural practices are among the leading contributors to the greenhouse effect, which scientists are saying is responsible for climate change that will eventually lead to untenable growing conditions. The overuse of highly toxic pesticides, fertilizers, and herbicides not only emit vast amounts of carbon, they seep into our precious water tables. Hemp offers one solution as a replacement for unsustainable industrial crops that are grown for biofuel and other non-food uses, since it can be grown organically without toxic chemicals. And I plan to get more into that in the coming weeks. But what about all of the other food crops that use large swaths of irrigated land and rely heavily on toxic chemicals to grow? Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show last week, innovation is often born out of necessity. And in case you missed it, Marco Hedgy explained how cannabis cultivators operating within limited confines of indoor agricultural facilities have learned to maximize their yields, minimize water waste, and eliminate the need for toxic chemicals by using hydroponic systems and other green technologies that could help other agricultural sectors become more sustainable and more productive. In the early days of cannabis regulation, the environmental benefits of these sustainable cultivation techniques were negated by the amount of energy required to grow cannabis indoors. I mean, we're talking thousands of watts of high-intensity lights and the industrial-strength HVAC systems running at full bore to control the heat that they generated. But like I said, necessity is the mother of innovation, and today these indoor cultivators have developed 
broad-spectrum LED lights to significantly reduce their energy usage and vastly increase capacity by enabling vertical stacking in a way that would have been impossible with the earlier technology. The beauty of this is that it could be used to reduce the overall carbon footprint of all food production. Imagine localizing food supply in vertical farms that conserve water, require minimal energy to operate, and eliminate the need for the toxic fertilizers, etc. If the cannabis industry made it work, why not apply it to other fresh foods? That's the topic of today's show, and our guest has the answer and some food for thought. Andrew Myers is co-founder and CEO of ProGrowTech, whose foray into the continual evolving LED industry took root during his tenure as a cannabis policy consultant. At that time, he recognized the immense untapped potential of LED technology as a game changer in the agricultural use, especially as the demand for quality harvests increased with an energy-conscious climate. Prior to founding ProGrowTech, Andrew's career spanned state and national political scenes for more than 14 years. He was a political aide and consultant to many prominent policymakers, including former President Barack Obama and former Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano. As one of the authors of the 2010 Arizona Medical Marijuana Act, he served as campaign manager and chief spokesperson for Prop 203, which was the successful effort to make medical marijuana legal in Arizona. And following the campaign, he co-founded the Arizona Medical Marijuana Association, a 501c6 organization for licensed medical marijuana dispensaries, and worked closely with the Arizona Department of Health Services to create the rules package that accompanied the AMMA. He also served as the executive director of the Arizona Dispensaries Association. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, really looking forward to the conversation. Oh, me too. There is so much to delve into, and you have quite a history in the public policy department, and especially when it comes to our medical policy here in the state of Arizona. So were you working for the Marijuana Policy Project at the national level, or were you just brought on to work on the state initiative? It, oh. it was state level. So I mean, I, I worked for National MPP, but I was the Arizona state director was my title for them. And I was basically the campaign manager for the Arizona Project for the Medical Marijuana Initiative in 2010. Yeah. So tell me what that was like. Because, I mean, at that time, there were very few states that had actually passed a medical marijuana initiative. And it must have been just so novel for people as you were working on that campaign. Tell me just a little bit about that. Yeah, it was. It was very different. Um, it, it's it's incredible. You know, I'm 10 years now kind of in the industry. And the changes that we've seen over that time period have been uh, incredible. Um, back when I first started working on that campaign, I was initially approached um, in December 2008. And it was actually one of those situations where it seems like a really bad situation and it ends up being the best thing that ever happened to you. Um, it, this was during sort of the fever pitch of the financial crisis and the organization that I had been working for um, where I was recruiting, training and helping elect um, progressive candidates to state and local office. That was kind of my, my job. Um, and the organization that I was working for um, was major donor funded and the financial crisis hit our donor base very hard. And so they had to 
closed down the Arizona office um, because we were one of the states that wasn't self-sufficient. There's not a lot of progressive money in Arizona, so we were funded from elsewhere. Um, and so I got laid off at a very awkward time in December um, of 2008, where there's sort of this game of musical chairs that takes place at the end of an election where people leave their jobs and go to new jobs sort of in the month after a campaign ends. And that had all taken place, you know, and the, the people that were going to the, the White House with the Obama White House had already been set. And I was sort of looking around, like, what am I going to do with myself? And um, I got offered the, the job to manage the medical marijuana campaign. And, you know, this was early in the cycle. I, I worked on the campaign for, for a whole two years, but, you know, they were just beginning the drafting process. And just to your point about how, you know, novel it was at the time, I mean, I was very concerned about taking the job, you know, and I was a mainstream political consultant and kind of my first reaction, and I'm you know, a little bit ashamed of this, you know, today, but was I was worried that working on that campaign was going to be a bit of a scarlet letter for me moving forward. And, you know, but I, I took the interview and I'm glad that I did. And I, I met the folks that were uh, associated with the marijuana policy project and, you know, I was deeply impressed with them, obviously, because, you know, they're wonderful professionals. Um, and, you know, I was, it was a real privilege, actually, to be uh, associated with the campaign. But yeah, it was definitely novel at the time. And a lot of the people that I had been working with up until that point thought that I was a bit of a radical. Um, I mean, I even had a hard time getting, you know, Democratic lawmakers to endorse the initiative. Um, and many of these Democratic lawmakers are people that I had literally put in office. I've been you know, a consultant to them or recruited them to run in the first place. And it was just such a, um, an alternative issue. But, you know, as with many things, the voters were um, definitely ahead of the elected officials when we went into 2010 on that, on that issue. So how do you go from being a political consultant to being the CEO of a, a growing operation? Sure. So just, you know, clarity, I, I don't, run a, a growing operation, although I did used to work for a dispensary. Um, but that was really the transition. So, I mean, the link was, I was a, you know, a mainstream political consultant, got laid off at an awkward time, um, ended up taking a job that I thought might have been problematic, but ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, you know, the campaign was successful in 2010. Um, and then I ran the industry association um, for three years after that. And uh, during that time period, when we were um, building out the program in Arizona, it was really the first wave of cultivation facilities that were looking for energy efficient lighting technologies. Um, you know, they were looking for, uh, you know, a, a better mousetrap when it came to grow lights. And there were a lot of companies that were, you know, uh, promoting new technologies, whether it was, you know, LED, but also um, induction and plasma lighting. But what we found was that now, every grow that took a chance on one of these energy efficient lighting technologies, um, it failed. Um, it failed where they didn't have anywhere near uh, the yield that they were experiencing previously with high pressure sodium lighting. The quality was down. Um, and then the lights themselves were, were quite expensive. And so it was, you know, seven figure um, value mistakes that folks were making with lighting technology. Um, and then, you know, us as, a, as an industry association, we became interested in you know, energy efficient lighting technology that was um, that was valid, you know, on behalf of our on behalf of our clients. And I was lucky that I have family in the lighting business, um, not in the horticultural end of things, but just in the commercial white light space. And so we understood I'm um, kind of within my network LED lighting technology um, pretty well. Um, and we 
understood that LED was going to be the future um, of cultivation, and we knew that this was a way to make these grows more energy efficient, which from my standpoint, working on the policy side, uh, we saw that the expansion of this industry was going to be limited by our energy efficiency problems. I mean, the, it's, a, it, it's a green industry in the, you know, in, in the cannabis sense, but it's not a very green industry when it comes to energy consumption or, and, you know, back in the day, it really was not very um, energy efficient. So, you know, we knew that we needed to solve this problem if we were going to um, be able to experience type of industry expansion that we were looking at. Uh, and, you know, California wasn't going to stand by and let, you know, 9% of the energy grid go to cannabis cultivation it just wasn't going to happen. So, you know, we became very interested in it from that standpoint. Um, and, you know, we knew that LED was the future. And we first started working with existing uh, lighting companies that were already in the space. You know, our first idea wasn't to build our own grow lights. Uh, we just really wanted to represent the voice of the customer to existing uh, LED lighting manufacturers where we were saying to them, listen, we think you've got something here, um, but you're not, what we realized the problem was, is, was not with the technology itself, but what we call systems integration is that they weren't deploying the technology appropriately in a way that was useful for the end consumer, not useful for the cultivator. Um, and a lot of that had to do, and we can get into the technical aspects of that if you would like to, but it's a little bit dry, um, with the, the size of the, the lights and the type of light spectrum that was being used. And we had some insights on that front. And so we tried to help a couple of companies along and for various reasons, those relationships didn't work out. And we realized that it might be easier for us just to build our own lights. And so, you know, that's what we started trying to do. And, you know, three or four prototypes later, we ended up with um, our Evolve Series Light, which, you know, I think has been a big, a big factor in uh, generating this transition away from high pressure sodium onto LED, you know, is one of the first, um, you know, truly successful LED lighting platforms where not only could you cut your energy bills by 50%, but you could also, you know, increase your yield at the same time. And, and that's what we realized is that people were not going to adopt LED technology unless that they were going to be able to get not only on the energy efficient side, but also on the yield side, better results than they were getting before. Yeah, and LEDs, which for people who don't know, it stands for light emitting diodes. Mm -hmm. The light spectrum, it's taken a long time for LEDs to actually come into sort of a, a, a future use, if you will, because I mean, as they started out, I think they were only red and green in the very beginning. And they've come a long way in, as far as the technology in order to be able to get the white lights, the daylight, the the ambient golden color lights that you can get from low wattage incandescent bulbs, but it seems so counterintuitive and without getting too much into the weeds about the technology of it, if there's just like a really basic way to explain it, how do you get from what a plant needs from the sun for regular photosynthesis out of an LED? Sure. And that's a, a really good question. Um, and as you were saying before, I mean, when we got involved in LED lighting, uh, the vast majority of the LED fixtures that were uh, created for horticulture um, were what we call monochromatic LEDs, where they were, you know, either red or they were blue. Um, and actually, LEDs are either red or blue. Um, the way that we create white LEDs is that we put uh, what's called a phosphor. Um, so it's basically a filter over the top of a blue LED to add another color to it. And then it's some percentage blue and some percentage some other color that is this filter that we put over the top of a blue LED. Um, and it generates a color that our eyes see as being white. But what you might actually be looking at is 
like a cool white diode, like the, 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 the really annoying blue white headlight color where you're like, is that guy's brights on, you know, when you're driving down two lane road, like that is a, a color, it's 75% blue and 25% green mixed together. And then the human eye sees that as being white. Um, but where that really makes a difference for plants is that plants want a balanced diet of light photons. They want the entire spectrum of light, the same way that they get it from sunlight. And the early LEDs, in an effort to be efficient, because when we put those phosphors over a type of LEDs, they it, it blocks some of the light output. So you need a very efficient LED to be able to put a phosphor on it and still have it be effective. And the early LEDs just didn't have the power behind them. And so you had this purple tinged light where it was a combination of red LEDs and blue LEDs. And theoretically that works. And for certain crop types that works pretty well, like leafy greens tend to respond to that type of spectrum okay. But flowering plants, whether they be cucumbers, tomatoes, or cannabis, don't care for that um, monochromatic light source. They want a full spectrum light source. And so LEDs getting more efficient and, you know, white colored LEDs, the phosphor colored LEDs getting more efficient um, was really an, an important uh, developmental step in this whole process of making LEDs viable. But the other thing too was understanding that the advantage of LED is being able to get the light close to the plants. Um, old school grow lights like high pressure sodium lights uh, generate an awful lot of light intensity, but it's only from a one point source. So the only way you can get uniformity where every plant in the room is getting the same treatment from the light is that the lights need to be hung high. Um, but the enemy of light intensity is distance. And so, you know, these lights work very well in a greenhouse environment where they're just there for supplemental. But when they are the only light source in an environment, um, you're losing so much of that light energy because the light is far away from the canopy of the plants. The nice thing about LEDs is that we can spread that light out. And we can bring the light down very close to the plants, which has two benefits. Number one, you get more intensity on canopy for the amount of wattage that you're using, which you know helps energy efficiency. But the second thing is it allows you to vertically stack, which that's really the future of horticulture. And really what this whole project is about for us is cannabis is great. Um, I mean, and we're a believer in the industry, but as far as our technology is concerned and where it's going, it's really a means to an end. You know, ultimately what we're trying to develop is the systems that will allow us to eliminate food insecurity globally. Um, and the way that we do that is having um, very high efficiency, indoor um, controlled environment, horticulture operations that are highly energy efficient and that can be made off grid. Um, and we really believe, you know, that's the future of food production um, because this type of technology is only getting more energy efficient with time. Um, but the pressures on outdoor agriculture uh, whether they be water shortages in California or climate change more generally, um, is putting pressure on outdoor ag. And indoor ag is only getting more and more efficient. And at some point, those lines are going to cross. And I think that it's probably um, a lot sooner than, than people realize. So, I mean, this technology that we're developing, um, I mean, and while it's great to be able to make, you know, cannabis growing operations more efficient and be able to provide a higher quality and lower cost product to an end consumer for medical marijuana, which I think there's a societal benefit in that in and of itself. Um, but that's small potatoes compared to what the real objective is here, which is, you know, developing these systems that are going to be able to feed a planet that's going to have 10 billion people on it here. You read my mind because I was going to start getting into this is one thing that's really interesting to me. And 
we have so many unsustainable agricultural practices right now that have people in sort of this roundup merry-go-round with the GMOs of the world. Mm -hmm. And those are causing all sorts of problems. But also the shortage of land, as you mentioned. And I think that taking the stackable indoor agriculture so that a skyscraper, for example, could be the equivalent of a, a thousand acre farm in what it could produce. And I know that in China, they're starting to implement some of this technology to be able to grow in a vertical way, because they're just completely out of land in certain areas. Mm -hmm. And so how do you see this transitioning. I mean, I really see that the cannabis industry is sort of leading the way and finding more efficient ways to do this because they've been relegated to indoor growing with the security measures and all of the things that go with these state regulations, especially in states like Arizona. And I mean, earlier on in California, too, where they were requiring people to grow cannabis indoors, specifically locked up away from the public view and also away from access to school kids, <laughs> if you will. I mean, there was a lot of paranoia around it at first. And so as the cannabis industry had to adapt to these regulations, they're actually figuring something out that could be useful for just about every other agricultural industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, what's the old saying, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? <laughs> absolutely. And it was really a two-stage process because, you know, the the indoor growing, I mean, and it was definitely pioneering on technique, you know, even going back to the black market days um, with cannabis. But up until recently, those uh, facilities have not been particularly efficient. And it's because they weren't under market pressure to, to be so. You know, when you're selling black market and there's a huge risk premium associated with your product. So, I mean, you're able to sell it at such a huge premium. Um, there's not pressure on you to become efficient on the cost side. But you know, a state like Colorado, where the vast majority of the grows there are using older technology because the grows themselves are older just because the, the program is older. Um, but you have a, a dynamic where the wholesale pricing is approaching $1,000 a pound. I mean, and it used to be over $3,000 a pound. Um, and in many cases, it's costing these guys $1,000 a pound to grow it indoors because they haven't adopted this type of energy efficient technologies. And they used to have a pretty good business where they had 66% margins, you know, and they were selling for $3,000 a pound and producing for a thousand, but now they're producing for a thousand and selling for a thousand. And that's not a way to stay in business. But also, you know, with these high intensity lights, they had to have HVAC systems that would eat up a lot of their energy usage as well, just to keep the place cool enough for the plants to survive. That's exactly right. And so it's the energy efficiency comes from a combination of the LEDs are pulling less wattage to begin with, um, but also because they're pulling less wattage, they're generating less heat. And so, yeah, you're offsetting that cooling load dramatically. So not only, and this is what the growers are now understanding and why the adoption of the technology is really taking off on LED, um, because LED is more expensive. I mean, you see that when you go to you know, your Home Depot, you look at an incandescent bulb and an LED bulb, and the LED bulb is probably going to cost about four times as much, but the payback period on that is relatively short. Um, but when you are spending millions of dollars to build out these facilities and you're having to come up with it with cash, um, and in the case of these cannabis operations up until very recently, financing really wasn't available. So you need to be looking for those other offsets, and you've ad identified a really important one, which is you don't need as many tons of AC 
if you're running LEDs and if you're running the you know older legacy technology. So not only is there a huge operating expense savings, but there's a capital expense savings um, associated with this technology as well. And so you have these growers that are finding these new ways to be efficient. And so you know we're getting to a point where we had you know in say five years ago it was profitable to grow $3,000 a pound cannabis indoors. You know, now we've gotten to a point where it's profitable to grow $800,000 a pound cannabis indoors. You know, the next stop is, you know, growing. And now we have facilities, you know, in a lot of the major cities that are growing, you know, high end, um, you know, salad greens for restaurants, like in a place like New York, um, that that's being done profitably, you know, within these large vertical stack, you know, indoor cultivation facilities. Um, and we're heading down towards where, you know, our basic spinach and, and herbs are going to be grown profitably indoors. Um, and so there's just an ever expanding range of crops where it's more profitable to be able to grow it inside. And we're able to adopt a hyper local food production system based on this. It's like your, your production is no longer limited by season or by climate. And we can grow the food where people are going to be consuming it. So we can stop you know, shipping soybeans from Iowa over to China, you know, and, and vice versa, where, you know, so much of our food comes from other places in the world. And, you know, my, my family, we love to shop at Trader Joe's, but it drives you crazy when you look at the produce and half of it comes from halfway around the world. I mean, the carbon footprint associated with that is just outrageous. And so, you know, as we're taking, you know, the climate more seriously, um, you know, food security is going to be a big question here as we move forward, particularly other places in the world. Um, South Asia, for instance, uh, we're going to have to start taking these solutions seriously. Um, and I think the market is going to drive a lot of it. I think a lot of this is going to become just more profitable. Um, but also, I think that, uh, you know, big, big customers for these types of systems are going to end up becoming, um, you know, governments and, and non-governmental organizations that are focused on food security questions. Uh, I mean, we can end hunger. We can. I mean, we have the technology to do it. It's just now a question of political will. Um, we just have to decide that this is a priority. If we mobilize around this, I mean, we can end hunger globally. I mean, we, we now, for the first time, this is, we are the first generation where that is a, a genuine goal that we can strive for. Um, it's, we're no longer limited by, by technology. We're, we're only limited or only limited by our own um, by our own will. Well, like everything related to the climate, we need to get ourselves out of the way <laughs> in order to solve some of these problems. But, you know, when you have a, a, a solution that not only creates economic opportunity on local levels for people, but also helps to solve some of the carbon emission problems that we have. And you're right. I mean, it just seems like a ridiculous waste of carbon and money just to drive a truckload of spinach halfway around the continent because the land, you know, where it's being grown is that far away. But this sounds like an incredible solution on so many different levels. And the cost efficiency, like you said, the LEDs are expensive, but you offset those costs by having lower operating costs, but also you don't have to invest in these big systems. But let's say a mom and pop operation to start doing this, what's going to be entailed from your perspective, you know, what, what kind of investment are people looking into to, to start an operation that would be efficient like this for, you know, whether it's cannabis or something else? Yeah, and that's a, and that's a good question. I mean, I think it, it, it's all a question of scale, you know, I mean, and I think that you have, there are a lot of folks that have been able to start, 
you know, small scale operations. Um, and they've, you know, done a good job of producing very high quality product, you know, whether it be cannabis or whether it be food or, you know, some sort of other artisan product. Um, I mean, I, I think that this is a, indoor agriculture is a very profitable enterprise and, and not only um, for food, but also for, um, you know, other kind of food adjacent crops like growing herbs indoors can be very profitable also growing things like cut flowers indoors can be very profitable um and and i think as we move toward the future here as well is the we talk about the cost of things a lot um and i mean obviously that's a very primary concern when you're talking about it um, and as a, as a business owner but when we look at it more from a macro standpoint and we think about the cost of being able, you're talking about trucking that, you know, load of spinach, you know, halfway across the continent. Um, you know, our fossil fuels are artificially cheap. I mean, they're subsidized on the corporate side. They're, you know, the, the extraction of them is subsidized. Um, you know, there is a societal impetus to try to provide cheap fuel to people, you know, because it's seen as basically economic stimulus, being people cheap gas that allows them to be more productive. But, you know, we don't recognize the expense of that. I mean, number one, you know, we have the subsidy anyway, just on the extraction of the of the the substance itself. But the fact that it's finite really isn't taken into account with the expense that we pay. Nor does is the environmental impact of you know what the downstream cost of the carbon that we burn is not calculated in the cost of that of that fuel. Um, and I think as we start looking at you know what the real cost of our energy production is and it's not only gasoline it's also like arizona for instance is a coal state like when we when you're talking about the difference between led technology and hps technology and the number of megawatts that your facility is going to be using over the course of a year i mean you need to wrestle with the fact that every single one of those megawatts is being consumed like we are burning coal to produce that here in arizona like we sell our nuclear power to California. Like when you're produce, when you're consuming power in Arizona, you're consuming coal power, and that's true a lot of places all over the all over the country. So I mean, when we start getting very serious about what the long term, um, and we start calculating the true cost of what the long term impact is of our of our environmental policy and of our energy policy, um, these types of technologies just start making you know all of the sense in the world. Um, but getting back to your original question about the mom and pop. Um, the thing that's become available now, I mean, and, and has been available for LED technology more generally, and it's just now becoming available within cannabis is lease financing. Um, you know, the banking situation is starting to resolve itself. Um, this was a tool that was not available before. Um, but when you have a piece of technology that costs you a lot up front, but you only have, but you have a two year payback period associated with it. The most obvious thing to do in that situation is to finance it. You know, you, you put it on a three-year financing package, and then you're you're putting instead of coming out of pocket for the technology, you're actually putting money in your pocket every month because the energy savings that you're achieving, you know, switching from HPS to LED is actually paying that monthly note. So you come out ahead, and so that's really what is speeding the adoption of this, this technology in cannabis, and really what was holding it back up until now. Uh, was the lack of availability of those lease financing programs. Um, but, you know, that's kind of how you make it work, whether you're a mom and pop or, you know, whether you're a large, you know, sophisticated industrial scale operation. Um, you know, it's all about being efficient per square foot um, and, you know, being able to afford to purchase the technology that is going to enable you to minimize your operating costs because that's how you remain competitive in the marketplace moving forward is you know trying to keep your costs low 
um, and, you know, finding a way to be able to acquire the appropriate technology up front, you know, whether that's for cash or whether for financing um, is a key to downstream success. And so, you know, we, we go the extra mile for our customers to try to help them access those types of resources. And, uh, and I'm sure that's true of other companies that are, have similar technology to ours. Yeah. Last week, we spoke with Marco Hedgie from Grow Life, and they've got all these hydroponic systems that people can put into their indoor grow operations, you know, for the water efficiency. And it seems as though if you were to combine that with the LED there's really no telling how much savings in terms of land usage, the elimination of pesticides and fertilizers and all of that stuff. I mean, for any kind of food, it just seems like a no brainer to me. And this is something that I think that as they start to look at a green new deal, this is something that I'd like to see them implement, you know, across the board for food, not just for cannabis, but for all kinds of food production. But no, absolutely. I mean, and it, and just, just, just talk, it's just, I mean, I'm sorry, this excites me. You're absolutely right. I mean, back of the napkin calculation, I mean, a 10 year cost of roughly a trillion dollars ballpark. I mean, just talking big round numbers here, but a trillion dollars over 10 years could create the infrastructure that we could feed every man, woman, and child in the United States with fresh fruits and vegetables perpetually in a controlled environment situation where it was all grown and delivered on a hyper-local basis. Like, I mean, I would love to see us be, you know, putting up these 10,000 square foot, you know, light depth controlled environment greenhouses, like at every high school, like in, you know, making this part of our educational system, getting kids involved in the production of this food. Absolutely. And imagine how that would create like a sense of community where it's like, it's not just for people who are economically disadvantaged. It's all across the board. Like everybody shows up at the high school and gets their CSA bucket of fruits and vegetables that are grown here locally by your kids at your school. How awesome is that? And that's something that we can do. We could, I mean, we could, and we could literally end hunger in the United States this way for less money than we spent in Iraq for something, you know, way less useful. So, I mean, like this is doable. And that's why I was saying earlier, it's just a question of political will. Like this is, this exists. It's something we can do. Um, we just need to decide as a country that this is our priority. Um, and, and I, and I think that this goes much deeper too. I think it's really a question of true freedom because, how can you be truly free if you are constantly worried about if you're if you're insecure when it comes to from a food standpoint right i mean and this is why people are trapped in you know jobs that are exploitative and you know a lot of other negative situations in life is because they feel like they can't if if they left the situation that they were in that they would not be able to access the basic things that they need to survive And I think that the cannabis industry, and we've been talking a lot about the food component of this, but also when it comes to things like um, shelter for everybody, like, you know, products like hempcrete are offering an incredible um, avenue for low cost housing that we could be able to create. Um, And I think that there is a, a generation of people that are kind of coming up now that are realizing, you know, why are we not solving these problems on a large scale like why are we not creating we're one of the richest countries in the world why can we not create a floor for existence where you know no one in this country has to live in extreme poverty you know and how can we leverage technology to create these solutions 
that up until now were very labor intensive, which made them not feasible, but for the investment just in technology. And it's like, when you start talking about, you know, what is money at this point? I mean, at a certain point, there's not a lot of resources need to go in this. It's just technology. I mean, an upfront investment can pay massive dividends at this point. And, you know, we just, again, like I said, we just need to make it a priority in this country and elsewhere. I agree 100%. And, you know, you're talking about the subsidies that go into the oil industry and also subsidies that go into the pharmaceutical industry. If you were to take those subsidies and start, gosh, moving them over into some of these clean technologies and incentivizing people to use hempcrete, for example, to make their homes, they'd eliminate all of the off-gassing insulation and all of the things that go into a house that make it toxic. <laughs> and not only that, I, a few months back, I interviewed uh, Greg Flaval about the hempcrete. He's, he's a master builder in hempcrete and an expert in all aspects of hemp. And we were talking about this and, you know, I thought with all of these communities that have been destroyed by floods, destroyed by hurricanes, destroyed by tornadoes and fires and earthquakes and everything else, if they rebuilt with hemp, those houses would be able to withstand some of those floods and, and still be mm -hmm. standing and not be toxic by the time they dried out. And they'd be able to retard the fires as well. They'd be able to withstand, you know, that extreme heat without just catching fire just because of the heat, not necessarily because the flames were up against the house. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty interesting. But I think that, you know, if we start taking some of the subsidies that go into the oil industry and subsidizing hemp instead and subsidizing hemp instead of corn as well. We could start creating almost all of our fuel, all of the plastics and composites and everything else can be made with hemp, so why not? It seems as though these solutions are here and they'd be cost effective. Well, I mean, and the cost, and so many, you keep talking about subsidies, I mean, and that's a really critical component here is that, you know, a lot, the argument against a lot of these initiatives is, is that how would you pay for it? And it's, well, you know, so many things are made artificially inexpensive because of the subsidies that we apply to them. It's like, they're not, they're not actually inexpensive. It's just that, you know, we've, we've created a, a system by which they appear to be inexpensive. And the thing that I really like about, you know, the, the proponents of the green new deal and the way they're talking about it is a world war II style mobilization around this question, because when you get into a, like a war mobilization or an emergency mobilization type of situation is that the conversation shifts. You are no longer talking about how much do things cost in terms of dollars and cents. You start talking about things in terms of how much do things cost in terms of resources, in terms of how many, how many human hours do we have? How much energy resources do we have? You know, how much, how much do we actually look like? What is our inventory of resources and how do we best apply them? It's like in the the economy takes a back seat to those calculus to that calculus, that practical calculus um, in your mission in front of you and what you need to be achieving. And I think that if we decided that we wanted to attack you know food insecurity or we wanted to attack homelessness or we wanted to attack poverty or or the combination of those things, if we really went after that with a World War II style or a New Deal style mobilization, um, I mean, we re remade our entire society within 15 years. I mean, you look at 
you know, 1940, where we're still emerging from the Great Depression, we enter the war, and by 1955, it's Mayberry, right? Like, the entire American middle class and suburbia was created basically inside of 15 years, and there was a war in between. Americans are, are capable of incredible things. We just need to be reminded that we are. I mean, we have so many, like, our, our utilization of labor is so low right now. You know, I mean, our unemployment rate is low, but there are so many people that, you know, are working multiple part-time jobs and a lot of these things that can be automated, right? I mean, and to me, this is, we're, we're going through an economic transition right now and we're seeing it on the agricultural side. I mean, and this is sort of the dark side of what we've been talking about, right? Like part of the cost that we're cutting is not only are we saving money on energy, but because we're automating these facilities, we're cutting labor costs. There aren't as many jobs that are associated with these farms of the future because like a lot of things that we needed to do by hand, we can do in an automated way before. And unfortunately, because of the way that our economy is structured, is that there's fear associated with that, of, of that automation. But we, should, we need to be creating a situation where we're embracing these technologies, where we are creating a machine that can do something that used to be backbreaking labor for a human being. But there's a negative context to that because we're worried about the human being not being able to feed themselves or their family downstream. And what a tragedy is that, is that because we are creating something that makes people's lives better and that we're not having to, you know, commit backbreaking labor to it, that, you know, somehow that human being that was performing that job is seen as disposable. And I think that's the real problem, is that we need to be these, these automated systems that we're creating it can either be the best thing in the world because we can create a world of, of surplus, of plenty. You know, scarcity has been a fact of life for human beings for the entirety of our evolutionary history. You know, there's never been enough food resources to be able to go around. It's always been a struggle. And it's like, all of a sudden, that's no longer the case. Like, we are producing more than we can use, but we're failing in distributing that out um, you know, to everybody, which I think is just a huge moral failing. Um, but we need to start, re instead of having these huge mega farms that are these huge profit-making enterprises and drive their profits up, honestly, by, you know, not delivering these resources the places that they really need to be going. I mean, there's a, an artificial scarcity that's created just for economic reasons. And I, and I think that we need to find a way to get past that. And we, we need to make a decision here collectively as a society is that everybody is valuable. Everybody deserves to eat. Everybody deserves to have stable shelter. Um, and especially because it's so much easier to provide these things than it's ever been before. I mean, it just becomes more and more of a, a moral abomination that we, uh, we fail to do it. Yeah. Well, it, as you were talking and sort of off topic, but it makes me think about all of the tax incentives that were just given away for corporations to continue outsourcing their jobs overseas. And, you know, we need to get back to a place where if a company is going to pay a decent wage and, you know, limit the CEO salary, for example, from 3,000 times their lowest worker to only 1,000 times their lowest worker, and give them the tax incentives so that their investors can make money on the stock market if they were to give everyone a living wage so that people didn't have to work, you know, three jobs in order to support a family. 
we've there are so many things that we've just forgotten about this disparity now between the working class and the people at the very top and i think that's they're trying to bring that together a little bit you know with the the politics on the left but for some reason there even the people who would benefit most from that they're resisting it because of the propaganda that's out there saying this is bad this is socialism this is it's so frustrating for me to listen to what's going on. No. And, and I mean, and I, and I think people need a history lesson, you know, I mean, and I, it, it's one of my favorite lines, you know, has been in when we talk about the, the tax rate thing and, and I'm, this is no longer a, a novel thing to say because it's, you know, become kind of a, um, a battle cry, you know, for the folks kind of on the left right now is, you know, the, at the, the time that, people seem to want to go back to, you know, the good old days of the American um, society, you know, like the, like the 1950s seems to be, you know, like the, like the, you know, the, the Mayberry good old days of, of the American economy, the top marginal tax rate under Dwight D. Eisenhower was 95%. 95% was a top marginal tax rate in 1955. Like that's crazy. I mean, and that's why we had a middle class is because there weren't, these people at the top that were taking, you know, the vast majority of all of the wealth gains that were being created, like, you know, the, the, the post-war consensus economy from 1945 up until, you know, Reagan was elected in 1980 is that you had corporate profits and uh, worker wages that increased in tandem. They were, they were increasing side by side. And then the tax cuts in 1980, when the top marginal rate went from 70% down to 35, and there was a corporate tax cut associated with that as well, is that's where that broke. And wages have been flat in real dollars since 1980, while corporate profits have gone through the roof. I mean, there, it used to be that we were in it together. I mean, and, you know, for my my small little company, just you know, speaking about ProGrowTech, it's like you know, everybody, every single employee in my company is also a shareholder in my company, right? Because that's just like we we think it's important that we all we all win together and we all lose together as a family. Um, but you know we we that's not unfortunately typical. I think sort of in um in 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 private business these days. And you know and if the market is not going to take care of things, and I mean I'm a big believer in the market as as a really incredible force. But it like markets do not operate well without regulation They're, they they get out of whack i mean at a certain point you need government to be able to step in and address systematic inequality um and the wealth inequality that we're seeing at this time is you know greater than it's been since the 1920s i mean and at a certain point it becomes a question of political stability like this is actually what i was i was arguing for these things back when i was in my past life you know when i was a democratic political consultant i was one of those people and you know, trying to advocate for really progressive taxation policies and things like that. And that was always my point is, is that if we don't solve this, you know, you create a situation where you have economic desperation and then people start making strange political choices. I mean, and look what happened in this last election is that, like you said before, it's like the people that would most directly benefit from the policies that you and I are discussing right now are people that in many cases are voting directly against their own economic interests. And I think that the reason why that is, is that they felt completely unrepresented for so long. And they feel like no one's been fighting for them. I mean, they, and they, I think they've forgotten what that even looks like. And, you know, and, and for me, I come from the Midwest. I come from the industrial, you know, formerly unionized Midwest, you know, where people used to have blue collar jobs and be able to send their kids to college. And now, 
you know, those same people are competing with their kids for, you know, minimum wage jobs in the service industry. And it's a very sad thing um, to see kind of the degradation of, you know, the American manufacturing base um, and that there's nothing been, there's not been nothing there to replace it. Um, and it's not like everybody is suffering simultaneously, right? I mean, certain segments of society are doing extraordinarily well, um, but there's just a lot of folks that have been left behind. And our politics is a result of that. You have, you have people who are scared and they're desperate and they're, they become, uh, they become susceptible to propaganda. They become susceptible to, you know, authoritarian leaders who tell them that they have all of the solutions. And uh, it's scary. I mean, and it's happening all over the world. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, we need to, we need to look ourselves in the mirror, you know, and start becoming solutions oriented. And, you know, this is our small little corner of the universe. You know, we're, we're trying to, you know, hammer away at the food question, um, which we think is an important one, but uh, we definitely realize that we find ourselves, you know, as a small part of a much larger context um, and, and really a, a struggle for social justice in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, we're, we're just trying to be our, like I said, in our own small little way an instrument um, for good. Absolutely. And, you know, something bringing this all full circle, that's one of the hopes that I have for the cannabis industry is to sort of set an example for the way that we can create an industry. And one of the advantages of having an industry born out of uh, prohibited substances that people have had to learn how to operate around these strange restrictions, but uh, do things in a way that that would benefit their companies, benefit the people that they're serving. And it's also kept a lot of that giant corporate interest out of it, you know, for all of this time since the since the first medical laws were passed. And yep. now you're starting to see a lot of the corporate interests get involved in the cannabis industry. But by now, we have set so many different examples of how things can work on a more localized level. And I know I'm getting a little esoteric here, but I think that the cannabis industry does have that potential to sort of set the stage for a lot of these changes that can follow. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's something that is talked about, um, you know, even at some of the investor conferences and things like that, you know, associated with the industry. I mean, I think there's definitely a desire that the 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 economic, you know, the wealth that is created from these businesses, um, there's definitely a desire among a lot of people to turn that towards a societal positive. Um, and there is concern within the industry, you know, among people who have been around for quite some time, you know, of trying to keep the cannabis industry from becoming so purely economically motivated the same way that most other sectors have become. Um, and, you know, in resisting that, you know, corporate conglomerate takeover kind of element of, of the industry. But it's tough. It's very, very hard. You know, you have these people that, you know, they got into it to start a dispensary. I mean, I think they wanted to do good. And they, you know, they wanted to make a, a societal positive, but they also got in it to make, to make money. Um, and I have a hard time faulting these dispensary owners that, you know, they went heavily into debt to get these things started in many cases, especially in early days. And they struggled, you know, they suffered, you know, they, they, they paid their dues. I mean, and they built a business that, 
has value. I mean, in Arizona, we've got a completely bonkers market for dispensary licenses out here right now where they're, you know, routinely going for $15, $20 million a piece, which is, to me is just absolutely insane. Um, but that's what's happening, you know, and you have a lot of these people that are, are exiting their businesses and are selling to people that are, are have, have a different set of values, right? I mean, and that's happening every day um, all over the industry. I mean, and I don't really know what the answer to this is, but, um, you know, I know that a lot of my friends that I've known for some time and have been involved in this industry, I mean, we, we really are in it for the right reasons. I mean, and we want to be able to, uh, you know, see a, a net societal benefit to this downstream. And, and I would expect that, you know, a lot of the people that are doing well in this industry will become people that are going to become very, you know, active on the, on the charitable front, um, addressing a lot of the issues that we've been speaking about, but money speaks, it's tough. I mean, in, in corporate power, unfortunately, in this type of environment is very difficult to resist. You know, we saw, um, Altria, you know, which is the, you know, the new brand for RJ Reynolds. And they put a, I believe it was a $1.6 billion investment into, you know, one of the largest operations in the in Canada. Um, and you know, they're, they're playing to win. I mean, and to them, this is just the the next front and then, you know, an ongoing kind of capitalistic campaign. I'm not trying to use any sort of crazy language on this, but I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. It really is. And, and I, and, and I, I think it's a very important question and I, and I wish I had a, I wish I had all the answers to it, but I, unfortunately I don't. Well, you've given us a lot of food for thought here. <laughs> I'm sorry. This has got kind of wide ranging here in the second half of the interview. No, I am actually glad because, I mean, the whole point of educating people about what's going on in the cannabis industry is to also bring into the spotlight some of the societal issues that we face that cannabis can partly solve. And so I'm always happy to talk about the wider ranging aspects of this. So thank you for that. Any parting thoughts? Um, yeah. I mean, I, to me, the most exciting thing about this industry is that we have a chance to be able to do things differently. And we have a chance to have different priorities. Um, and we have a chance to change our approach. And to me, that's an incredibly refreshing thing. Um, and, you know, we there are a lot for every opportunist that you meet in this industry of which there are many of people who just see the green rush and are trying to get involved to make a quick buck for every one of those there are so many other people who are among the finest people that you will ever meet because they didn't get involved in this because they thought that it was an incredible economic opportunity for them they got involved in it because they think that this is the right thing to do. And they were doing it long before it was popular, long before there was any business associated with it. Um, and they were doing it to try to, you know, improve the lives of their, of their friends and neighbors. And I, I think that at the core of it, that's what this industry still is. And there's a lot of us who are trying to do everything they can to make sure that it always stays that way. Um, and it's an incredibly beautiful plant as far you know talking about cannabis that has so many healing benefits and healing properties and you know it, i think it's incumbent upon us to 
you know, honor this amazing opportunity that we have to expose the wider world to the, the healing properties of, of, of this wonderful, of this wonderful kind of nature's gift. Um, and, you know, turning it into, you know, a, a, a pure dollars and cents business and, and not having some sort of broader societal benefit um, would just be a major failing if, you know, 20 years from now we look back on it and be like, man, that was really a missed opportunity. So, you know, I hope for all of our collective benefit that, you know, we uh, we all do the right thing. And um, I appreciate you and your, your show and, uh, you know, highlighting these issues and, you know, bringing it to a broader audience. And I, I think it's all just a very positive thing and it's a privilege to be a part of. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. And yeah, you know what? And it's the healing aspects of it, not just from like a medicinal side, but the healing of our society at large. You know, I think mm-hmm. that for the last 80 some odd years, we've been deprived of something that could bring so much prosperity and healing to the earth. <laughs> you know, from, from hemp uh, and, and solve a lot of problems for us. And the effort to legalize is also going to create a more equitable criminal justice system. I mean, on so many levels, we're talking so many levels. So yeah, well, I sincerely appreciate your insights so much, Andrew. So thank you again so much for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Snowden, it was a pleasure. And uh, anything else that we can do for you, please feel free to reach out and um yeah hopefully we'll get a chance to meet in person sometime down the road absolutely i hope so too so once again it is time to bring yet another show to a close i'd like to personally thank my guest andrew myers for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today if you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing at ProGrow tech please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com Click podcast to find today's episode, and that's where you'll find his bio along with a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio partners, Sunstate Technology, Canisphere Biotech, and Integrated Compliance Solutions for supporting our show, and our media partners at the Cannabis Science Conference, London CBD Group, Cannabis Radio, and Newsbank for helping us spread the word. I'd also like to thank my production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine, and our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for broadcasting our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe. Stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Most people don't realize that cannabis is serious business that requires serious technology solutions. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group, where we are seriously proud to provide technology and security systems that help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, I'm here to tell you that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis.